1 Samuel verses, uh, 2 verses 1 to 10. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none like holy like the, the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighted. The bowels of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who, have, who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honour. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Our Father, we need your help every time we come to your word. We don't pray that lightly nor casually. We pray it because we need it, and it is living, your word. The Holy Spirit picks up that word and applies it to our hearts in a supernatural way. And that's our prayer now, for your glory and for our good and for the honor of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name and for his sake. Amen. Now, why study 2 Samuel? We will read from 2 Samuel in a minute. Um, uh, Ella read to us from 1 Samuel. Why read, why study 2 Samuel? 2 Samuel is about the kingdom of David, about King David and his kingdom. It is a thousand years before the kingdom of Jesus. What relevance does it have for us? Well, the relevance it has for us is that it enriches our understanding of Jesus. King David enriches our understanding of God's forever King, the Lord Jesus. And David's kingdom, which was the establishment of God's kingdom, enriches our understanding of Jesus' kingdom, of which we are a part. Think of it like this, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of them like a brush stroke, a color in a canvas that is the canvas of the king and his kingdom, Jesus. To Samuel is just as important a brush stroke on that canvas, just as important and as rich a color. Without to Samuel, without David and his kingdom, we would understand less about Jesus and his kingdom. Now, I spent a lot of time in 2 Samuel in preparation to kick off this series, 
and I am genuinely excited about what we will learn about Jesus. Not least tonight, what we will learn from King David about King Jesus, what kind of king he is, what his character is like. And I'm excited too about what we will learn about the kingdom of Jesus from the kingdom of David. Most of all, though, I pray that we will learn in a sharper way, in a richer way, in a fuller way, in a way that engages more of our emotions and our minds, what it means to pray, your kingdom come, you will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, 1 and 2 Samuel is one narrative, one book in two parts. It describes the establishment of the kingdom of God. In part 1, 1 Samuel, the focus is on the kingdom of Saul. Saul was the people's choice of king, not God's. God anointed him as king, but Saul was the people's choice of king. And because of his disobedience... 1 Samuel describes how God rejects Saul as king and chooses David as his king. 1 Samuel ends chapter 31 with the death of Saul and Jonathan at Gilboa and the defeat of God's armies by the Philistines, the enemies of God. Now part 2 to Samuel, the focus is on the kingdom of David. Now, we're going to read now from the beginning of 2 Samuel. And the reason that Ella read from the beginning of 1 Samuel is that there is a marked contrast between the beginning of 1 Samuel and the beginning of 2 Samuel. You might think that the beginning of 2 Samuel is the appropriate point to sound the note of hope. But it's the note of hope that sounded at the beginning of 1 Samuel. At the beginning of 2 Samuel, it's a note of lament and discouragement. Now let's read the beginning of 2 Samuel. Now I'm not going to read the first half of the chapter, verses 1 to 16. That describes how David learns of the defeat of the armies of God at Mount Gilboa by the Philistines and the death of Saul and Jonathan. When he hears of their death, just look on the sheet, verse 11, David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And always remember who David is. He is the king, God's chosen king, foreshadows Jesus. David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And then we hear, verse 17, the most extraordinary and moving words of lament. From God's king. David, verse 17, lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. 
And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. These are the words of God's King. Now, there is a marked contrast between the beginning of 1 Samuel and the beginning of 2 Samuel. The beginning of 1 Samuel, the note sounded is one of hope. A new leader at the beginning of 1 Samuel through a birth. Hannah gives birth to Samuel. Hannah's response is a prayer that Ella read, a prayer of hope, of confidence, of expectation in the sovereign purposes of God, better days ahead. The beginning of 2 Samuel, the note sounded, is one of lament. It's a minor key. There's a new leader like the beginning of 1 Samuel. The new leader is David, but this time not through a birth, but through a death of Saul. David's response is to lament. Now, always remember, when you hear David, think, who is he? He is God's chosen king. He foreshadows Jesus. What do we learn about God's king? What is the first thing we hear from the lips of God's king? Mourning. Weeping, lamenting. Now, does that surprise us? Does it fit with our expectations and our understanding of God's King? Surely God's King, if anyone does, must know God's purposes, must know that God's promises will always be fulfilled in the end. 
Surely David knows that the death of Saul will lead to him, David, God's anointed king, being crowned. Surely David knows that that will lead to better days for the people of God, for David will rule in righteousness and in obedience. So why is he distraught? Are his words empty words? No. Why does he lament the death of Saul, one who was so implacably opposed to him, who again and again tried to kill him? Or the Lord Jesus, to whom David points. When the Lord Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he knows because he is God that the gospel of the kingdom will go to the very ends of the earth, yet he weeps over Jerusalem, his own people. And why? If you watched the funeral yesterday of Prince Philip, John 11 was read at the funeral. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus said to Martha. Why did Jesus weep outside Lazarus' tomb? Had he not just said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life? Whoever believes in me will never die. Why does the resurrection and the life cry? We can understand why Martha did. She believed Jesus' words, but her brother was dead. But why did Jesus weep? But he did. God's king laments. David laments. Jesus laments. And so can we. And to the Christian, there is given the liberty to lament. And more than that, to the Christian is given the responsibility, the encouragement to lament. Christians should show the world what it looks like to believe in the goodness and glory of God in the gospel. But Christians should show the world what it looks like to lament over all that is wrong in the world and in the human heart. As Christians, we believe passionately in the promises of God and the goodness of God. We know the ark of redemption. We know about creation and the fall and redemption and restoration. But in the meantime, as we long for the completion of that glorious plan when Jesus will return and wipe away every tear from our eyes, we lament. Romans 8, where we've been in our small groups, is a magnificent explanation of the glorious gospel of the kingdom. And yet there is a minor key a note that is sounded all through Romans 8, groaning, 
the groaning of creation, the groaning of Christians, the groaning of the Holy Spirit when we cannot find the words even to pray. We can lament, we should lament. The Apostle Paul laments in Romans. And I have found this to be of such an encouragement this week that the place we go in the Bible to learn the language of lamenting is from the king himself. My Savior teaches me how to lament. Now, what do we learn? Well, we learn from David here in 2 Samuel 1, God's king, that lamenting embraces our whole selves. It is physical, and there are tears. David was not afraid to cry. Jesus was not afraid to cry. As Christians, we should mourn and cry. Lamenting embraces our whole selves. It is physical. There are tears. We learn, too, that lamenting is not something we should, as God's people, do alone. Verse 11, David and all the men who were with him mourned and wept and fasted. Notice, and all the men who were with him. Verse 18, David said the words of his lament should be taught to the people of Judah. David the king is telling the people of God to lament and how to lament, but he is saying to them, do not let me lament alone. Let's lament together. And what a comfort it is that we are not meant to lament alone. We lament with one another, and we lament with the King. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. A Christian need not should not ever weep alone. That should not happen in a real church fellowship, and I believe and pray it would not happen here. Lamenting embraces our emotions, our whole self. Lamenting is corporate, and lamenting finds expression and explanation in words. What I'm getting at here is that David, God's king, gives us a language for lamenting. He does so here. He does so in many, many psalms that he wrote. And what a blessing it is that the Word of God puts into words or gives us the words that articulate and express what we feel. We often find ourselves saying, I do not know what to say. to this person who is mourning or lamenting. Or myself, I cannot find the words to express what I feel. Well, the Word of God gives us the words to express how we feel. 
not only the words to express how we feel, but the words to give reason and explanation as to why it is we lament. We lament because we live in a fallen, broken world of sin and suffering and death. Yes, as Christians, we live in light of the gospel of the kingdom. But for now, we live in this world with our hearts in eternity, but our bodies on the earth. And while we live in this world, we need the language of lament and the language of joy to make sense of our experience. Now, let's consider the content of the king's lament. What is David lamenting? Three things I think he is lamenting. Firstly, God's king laments the loss of God's glory and honor. That's in verses 19 to 21. Let's read 19 and 20 again. Your glory, O Israel, the people of God, is slain on your high places, Mount Gilboa, where they were defeated. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Now, David is longing for the impossible, that the Philistines would not hear of what had happened. David is saying to God, is there any way, God, that the Philistines will just not hear from anyone that they have routed God's people and killed God's anointed king and his son? Why is David asking that? Because David could not bear the thought of people rejoicing over the defeat of God. David goes on and says, You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. David is saying, God, that hill where your people were defeated, where your glory was lost, where your honor was lost, can you make that place barren forever as a reminder? For there on that field, the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. David describes in stark terms what has happened on Mount Gilboa. Oil was used to shine the leather or the metal on the shields, and Saul's shield is now bloodied and lies in the mud. What is David lamenting? He is lamenting the loss of God's glory and honor. Remember who Jesus, uh, David is. I've just told you. He is God's king. And God's king, David and Jesus, is concerned for the glory and honor of God. And when those who oppose God and his people prevail against them, relishing their victory, God's king laments. But surely setbacks are all part and parcel of the purposes of God. 
Do all things not work together for the good on the global scale as well as the personal scale? Yes. But that does not mean that we do not lament the defeats and setbacks when the cause of the gospel in a part of the world is pushed back, we do not rejoice. When a church disintegrates, the king of the church laments. Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Absolutely true, but the growth of the church, the extension of Jesus' kingdom on the earth is against spiritual opposition and through many difficulties. And lament is appropriate. Oftentimes the setbacks and opposition, the discouragement comes from within the church as it is compromised by the world. The true church of Jesus will win out in the end. But we lament when the church is compromised and faithless. We lament when a nation turns away from God and when people scorn God and dismiss his word. We know that God will have the last word But we lament when his glory and honor is lost. Where does lamenting the loss of God's glory and honor lead us? To pray what? Our Father, hallowed or glory, return to your name. Second, God's king laments the loss of Saul, a leader who did much good but tragically failed. Verses 22 and following, let's read a few of them. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. The phrase, how the mighty have fallen, is a reference to uh, Saul and Jonathan. Now, we might understand King David, God's chosen king, lamenting over the loss of Jonathan. But what about his lament over the loss of Saul? That is harder to understand. But David does lament his loss. And these are no mere words from David. He rips his clothes. His lament focuses on the good that Saul did. He had been a great warrior. He had won victories for God. He had brought prosperity to the people of God for a time at least. He had retained the loyalty of his son Jonathan. Perhaps that says more about Jonathan than Saul. But Jonathan died at his father's side. 
Isn't David's description of Saul here one-sided? Surely it is not the whole story. And you would be correct. It is not the whole story. It is not a balanced account of Saul's life. But David rightly understood Saul's death as the time to appreciate what had been lost. And in the view of God's anointed king, a great deal had been lost. But what about the tragic failure of Saul's leadership and his rejection by God? David cannot speak of that as a loss, but implicit in all that David says or doesn't say There is that note struck of what might have been, what might have been, and the failure of Saul, his disobedience to God, his weakness, his hostility to David, his resentment of his own son Jonathan's loyalty to David. God's king lamented. When a leader amongst God's people who did much good and who promised so much failed. We lament when leaders of God's people fail, when people who did much good fail. When we hear of Christian leaders, and there is a lot of this at the moment, when we hear of Christian leaders who fail because of sin, disobedience, misuse of power, lack of accountability, what should we do? We should lament. For it's a tragedy. And as we do so, we should pray that they would repent. And we should examine our own hearts lest we fall and fail. I think it is true that in lamenting for others, God can bring us to our senses and to repentance ourselves before it is too late. David the king's lament concludes with David lamenting the loss of Jonathan, his beloved brother in the Lord. These are beautiful verses, 25b to 27. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan, Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Jonathan was Saul's son, the crown prince. Jonathan was David's brother-in-law. David was married to Saul's daughter. But the reference here to brother that David uses is not one of kinship, it is one of close fellowship. Jonathan and David were brothers in the Lord. Now remember who David is. He is God's chosen king. He foreshadows Jesus. 
This is a description of the relationship, the fellowship between a believer and God's King. This is a description of the relationship, the fellowship between a believer and Jesus. And there is no relationship, there is no friendship or fellowship that surpasses that, not even the closest and most intimate of human relationship, the love of a husband and a wife. Jonathan was devoted to his king. He set aside his own claim to the throne of his father in favor of David. He set aside his rights for his Lord. He pledged his loyalty to him. Theirs was the love of a believer with their Lord. Both ways. And when Jonathan died, the king lamented his loss. He lamented the loss of someone who did so much good for the kingdom of God. Now, there are many things we can take from this. How much the Lord Jesus values his relationship with you. We often think of it the other way, don't we? How much we benefit from our relationship with Jesus. But this is not that way. This is David the king speaking of the fellowship with Jonathan who loved him. How much the Lord Jesus delights and values his relationship with you, the fellowship, the loyalty, the love you give him. How much we value his. How much worth and good there is in fellowship with Jesus. How that surpasses any other relationship, whether we are single or married. And within this context, within the context of the relationship, the fellowship between a believer and Jesus, that is the blessing of fellowship between believers. Many of us, many of us can testify to the blessing of close fellowship with fellow believers. And when they are gone, we feel and lament their loss. And even as we think on it as if they were gone and how much we would feel their loss, we value more than ever our fellowship with them. So God's king laments the loss of God's glory and honor. He laments the loss of a leader who did so much good but tragically failed. He laments the loss of his beloved brother in the Lord. And in all of this, God's king laments over death. Death is the incontrovertible evidence that the world in which we live and humanity is terribly, terribly broken. Death is the shadow, the pall, the darkness over the world. Death is not right. God did not create humanity in his image to die. Death is what God's king came to destroy. He did through his resurrection, and his promise is wonderful. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Yes, I do. But 
I will still have to go through the valley of the shadow of death. My Lord will be with me. The Lord is my shepherd. But the valley is dark. And I will watch people. People I love go through that valley. And that valley in the passing from this life to eternity is a valley of hope and joy, but a valley of hope and joy in tears. Light bursts in on the darkness, but there is darkness and lamenting is appropriate in that valley as well as joy. What is the first act of Jesus in the new creation? The first thing he does when we are raised and meet him in the new creation, the first thing he does is wipe the tears from our eyes. Because when we go through that valley, there are tears in our eyes. He wipes them off and says, they will never come again. Now in conclusion, as Christians, the language and emotions of lamenting is an important part of our testimony as we live in this world now. As Christians, we show the world what it means to have joy and confidence in the gospel of the kingdom, but we show the world what it means to lament in the pain and loss of this world. When God's glory and honor is lost, when a Christian leader fails, when a brother or sister in the Lord dies, every time we encounter death. Lament is part of the language and emotions of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. I wonder if there is ever a Sunday in our life as a church family when someone is not experiencing the emotions and searching for the language of lament. There has never been such a Sunday in the last 12 years. Never. And there never will be until the new creation dawns. As we learn to lament, we come to understand something more of what it means to pray, your kingdom come. Jesus, will you come with your kingdom? For I long for that day when you will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, let's be quiet for a moment and then pray these words that the Lord Jesus taught us. The words will appear on the screen and we can say them behind our masks. So please do 
and think of those around you. Think of those around you that you know are lamenting. Lamenting loss. Maybe many years ago, I feel the liberty with real understanding of pain to pray these words that Jesus taught us to pray. And so we do together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen.